You feel tightness in your chest, shortness of breath, or pain in your left arm. Your mind immediately pays more attention to that master organ, pumping all day and night. But how much do you really understand about what helps it and what hurts it? For example, your doctor may be wrong about cholesterol, and you should know you're never too young to worry about heart disease. We're gonna show you why your heart matters, how to really take care of it, and why women need to pay as much attention to their heart as men. I'm Dr. Drew Sinatra. And I'm Dr. Steve Sinatra. And this is Be Healthistic. Welcome to Be Healthistic, the podcast that is more than just health and wellness information. It's here to help you explore your options across traditional and natural medicine so that you can make informed decisions for you and your family. Health isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. Everyone has their own needs to be healthistic. This podcast illuminates the whole story about holistic health by providing access to the expertise of Drs. Steve and Drew Sinatra, who together have decades of integrative health experience. They'll share with you the best that traditional and modern medicine has to offer so that you could be more productive and more proactive in managing your overall health. Be Healthistic is powered by our friends at Healthy Directions. Now, let's join our hosts. Hi folks. Before we launch into our discussion today, I wanted to encourage you to be a proactive member of our Be Healthistic community. If you like what you hear today and you want to listen to future conversations on all things integrative and holistic health, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Also, check out and subscribe to our YouTube channel, which will feature video versions of our episodes plus video extras you won't want to miss. And finally, we have more with me, Dr. Drew Sinatra, my dad, Dr. Steven Sinatra, and other Healthy Directions experts, as well as a robust library of health and wellness content over on the Healthy Directions site. So visit HealthyDirections.com to explore our database of well-researched content and information. And of course, you can always follow us on our social media channels. Well, today's podcast is the heart of the matter, okay? Your cardiologist, your yes, heart I specialist. Am. This is your wheelhouse, Dad. I think as a culture, we think of heart disease as an older man's disease. But is that really true? Well, it was true when I was in medical school, I mean, about 50 years ago. I mean, Jew, it's amazing. I was a senior in medical school, and I rotated through the coronary care unit. And there wasn't one woman in the coronary care unit with a heart attack. We call it a myocardial infarction. So when I graduated medical school... I truly believed that women didn't get heart disease. I mean, I honestly believed it because I never saw it, you know, as a medical student. And then I had a baptism by fire. Over the years, I, I you know, I did an internship, a medical residency. I did two years of cardiovascular fellowship. And then in the mid-90s, you know, about 20 years after medical school, I was chief of cardiology at my institution. And all of a sudden, the coronary care units were being filled with women. And I'm saying to myself, oh my gosh, this is, this is something, this is a paradigm shift in this whole illness. And that's why I wrote the book Heart Sense for Women back in the year 2000, because the graphs actually crossed on heart disease. In the mid-90s, more women were dying of heart disease than men. That was a very pivotal milestone for me because, again, I truly believe that women were protected I don't know what the reason was. I mean, it could be women getting into the workplace, women becoming more like men, you know, women not relying on intuition like they were, women maybe not crying. I mean, there's so many issues. But I think when a woman becomes more like a man, 
heart disease is placed in her path. Wow, that's incredible. So it's not just an old man's disease, right? Happening to men in their 50s and 60s and 70s. I mean, now you're seeing women that are getting it in what, even in their 40s and 50s. Oh, yeah. In fact, in my book, the youngest woman I saw uh, in the coronary care unit was 18 years old. She had a massive what we call myocardial infarction. Thank God I admitted her that day, despite the fact that I was criticized by, you know, the, the head nurse, uh, you know, other doctors. I had just went into my, I, I just finished my fellowship. But, you know, Drew, the most important thing about the diagnosis of heart disease is the story. In other words, what is the presenting symptoms? And this young woman had such classic symptoms, and her EKG was sort of subtle. It wasn't, it wasn't totally normal. It had what we call some high ST takeoffs. And my intuitive sense was she was on birth control pills. And back then, when I, was, when I was a young doctor, birth control pills would sort of thicken the blood. And I just relied on, a, on my you know, clinical acumen at the time, and I admitted her. And thank God I did. Because in the middle of the night, my associate, Dr. Arthur Landry, had to put an emergency pacemaker in her because she went into the complete heart block. And she had an extensive, what we call a myocardial infarction with uh, a lot of heart damage. And if she wasn't admitted to the hospital, she would have passed. So that was a wake-up call to me at a very early age. I was only in my early 30s. I mean, I just received my boards in cardiology. I became an attending physician in cardiology. And heart disease can occur in anyone young, old, women, or man. And, you know, we all associate heart disease with cholesterol, okay? That's sort of the, the big thing, right, in, in you know, the medical literature right now and what doctors are prescribing to patients are statins, which are, you know, cholesterol-lowering drugs. Really, what's the whole story on cholesterol? Let, let's dig into that. Cholesterol plays a very small part in the overall picture of cardiovascular disease. The problem is is that the conventional medical establishment sort of creates the scenario that this is the main problem with cardiovascular disease and you must kill cholesterol or lower cholesterol or eliminate it. And in my opinion, as a heart specialist, nothing is farther from the truth. But there are certain patient populations of age, you know, sex, you know, you, you, I think you've always spoken about men who have had a coronary event or they've had a stroke or something like that. They, they would benefit. Yes. From taking a statin and lowering cholesterol. So there are some people that would benefit. Yes. And the reason why I developed experience or more expertise on this, one of the major medical journals about 20 years ago asked me to write an editorial about using statin drugs in the treatment of heart disease. You know, Drew, it's amazing. When you're asked to write an editorial, you know, by by a journal, you really got to research the subject. So I went back and I looked at all the clinical studies done on cholesterol. And there was one study that really caught my imagination. It was called the West of Scotland study. And basically, these Scots who were on statin drugs, they were high-risk men. They were like two-pack-a-day smokers. You know, when you're a cigarette smoker and you have, you know, other cardiovascular risk factors, I mean, treating these patients with cholesterol-lowering drugs, I, th- I thought, you know, high-risk men, it's not a bad idea. And here's what happened. The high-risk men treated with statin drugs did better than their counterparts who weren't treated. But when they analyzed all the data and they looked at all the risk, what they found is this, and it blew me away. Statin drugs have an affinity of changing the shape of red blood cells as they go through the spleen. We call that rheology, basically. 
the statin drugs sort of made the blood thinner. And the statin drugs were acting like antioxidants as well. So basically, statins do some good things, you know, anti-inflammatories, antioxidants, thinning the blood somewhat or changing the shape of, of, of these red blood cells. So in a vulnerable patient, like a cigarette smoker, you know, a male with other coronary risk factors, could statins bring something to the table? And yes, they can. So I gave this a lot of thought. After writing the editorial, spending 100 hours, you know, reading the literature, looking at my own clinical experience, I decided that statins did bring something to the table, but only in men, because I was using statins in women, and I wasn't seeing the same effect clinically. More women were getting side effects. And basically, I didn't use statins in older men because of the CNS effects. In other words, uh, I was seeing older men on statins with more memory problems. So I just decided in my own little, you know, milieu of treating heart disease. And by the way, I was seeing 40, 50, 60 patients a day back then. I wasn't only treating a few patients. I mean, I was in, uh, in a sea of it. The bottom line was statins in any male under the age of 75 with proven heart disease. I use statins. And I still follow that reasoning today. Okay. Okay. So what I'm hearing is that these statins have pleomorphic effects. Yes. Right? So they have antioxidant, blood thinning effects, they're affecting the red blood cells, etc. Perhaps that's one of the reasons why they're working to help people reduce their coronary risk over time, rather than lowering cholesterol. Because what I see in the clinic, my patients, is um, a male in his 40s, not overweight, but he's got a cholesterol of 240. Right, blood sugar is fine, eats a pretty clean diet, exercises, but he's got high cholesterol. So the, the, the doctors want to put him on statins. What's your thought on that scenario? Where generally there's very few risk factors, but yet we're just treating a number. We're just treating cholesterol. Well, you just said it. I mean, a good doctor, a really good doctor, is not going to treat numbers. They're going to treat patients. So you got to look at the patient's overall persona, you know, his risk. I would say this, if you have a male who hasn't had a heart attack, remember, any male under the age of 75 with a heart attack, I would put on a statin. But if that male had a positive, what we call coronary calcium score of, let's say, over a couple of hundred, in other words, the male has coronary calcification, you know, by EBCT scanning, that's CT scanning of the heart. If, if they have that scenario and don't have, have a previous history of a heart attack, but he's in that risk where he can lay down calcification, I'll use statins. But here's the hook. Statins have been shown to create coronary calcification in arteries. They appear to have a, an effect on MK7, which is one of my go-to supplements, because MK7 takes calcium out of coronary arteries, but statins can adversely affect that as well, as well as CoQ10. And so, you know, statins have so many biochemical effects that in any patient on a statin drug, male, female, older, younger, any patient, the doctor needs to be very careful about working with that patient, listening to that patient, and be able to change his, fo- his or her focus and maybe alter, you know, the drug or the pharmaceutical usage in that patient because, like I said, statins can have a downside. So if you're a listener and you've got a cholesterol 240, just like this gentleman we're talking about, what do you do? Well, that gentleman had no other risk factors, correct? No other risk factors. Well, it sounds like you're talking about me. 
I mean, I, I, mean, I had a cholesterol of 240, and I don't have risk factors. And basically, uh, I just treat myself with a lower carbohydrate diet. I eat more healthier fats. I take a ton of vitamin and mineral supplements that I believe uh, have you know some really good effects on the body. I don't use statin drugs to treat numbers, like I mentioned before. I mean, now, if this gentleman had a cholesterol of 240, had a previous heart attack, or you know uh, has coronary calcification, situations like that, uh, has active angina, has a positive exercise stress test with a thallium isotope, or, you know, uh, sure, I would use a low-dose statin. And I would also chase it with a lot of, you know, coenzyme Q10 as well. So what I'm hearing is that there's a time and a place for our listeners to be on a statin. If there's risk factors present, if they've had a history of some kind of coronary event, right? Previous if age counts, key, yes. all that sort of things count. So what about a woman? Okay, we're talking about men. What about a woman who's got a cholesterol, 240, no risk factors? Does that change anything? That's incredible that you're asking me this question because uh, this is what I would see in my office all the time. I'll never forget, I was in my office and a woman came in with a cholesterol of 250 and she was in her 30s. And I was the third cardiologist she saw. She saw two cardiologists at Yale who both recommended uh, statin drugs. She saw me, and I sat with her, and I said, uh, no, I wouldn't recommend a statin drug at all for these reasons. And she burst into tears. She was crying like a baby, and she hugs me, and she says, thank you, thank you, thank you. And, and, and again, why wouldn't I give a woman a cholesterol-lowering drug? Well, look, Drew. Women get more side effects than men. My colleagues have written about this. It's well written in the medical literature. I mean, women, for some reason, are more sensitive to the side effect profile. I, in my own experience with women, I found that statins didn't bring a lot to the table. Now, if I had a, a young woman with bypass surgery, stents, for example, previous heart attack, and she's going backwards, would I use a statin in that woman? Yes, I would. In other words, if, if this particular woman is not getting better, sure, I would use a statin. But in my experience with women, women get more side effects than men. So that's why I, I shy off of statins, even with women with coronary disease. Again, I'm not going to be dogmatic and say never, but let me say it this way. When a patient comes in to see you, they're all different. There's not one size that fits all here. And that's the problem with the uh, conventional medical establishment is we're too quick to write a prescription. Everybody has their own story. Everybody has their own risk factor profile. Everyone has their own different set of reasons of why we should use a drug or why we shouldn't. Well, you're mentioning the whole you know, cookie cutter approach in medicine, oh, which, yes, which is not working for treating heart disease, you know, and cholesterol and statins and such. So I love the, the personalized medicine approach that you take there. That's really great. That's what it is. It's personalized medicine. Now, going back to side effects, let's say someone really does need to be on a statin. They're on a pretty high dose, but they've got some muscle pain. They're having some memory problems. Would you lower the dose? Would you change their statin medication? What would you do in that situation? I would do all, all of the above, and that's what I've done clinically. In high-risk patients that I believe a statin is useful. And remember, I'm using the statin not to lower cholesterol, Drew. I'm using the statin because of its pleiotropic effects. I'll repeat them again, you know, the blood thinning, the antioxidant, uh, the anti-inflammatory effects. That's why I like a statin. But in men, if they have problems, uh, will I lower the dose? Absolutely. Will I give coenzyme Q10? Absolutely. In other words, in men who have proven heart disease, who have side effects, the combination of raising coenzyme Q10 and lowering the statin has been helpful in a lot of my patients, and I will continue to use a statin. Sometimes I had to switch from a, a fat-soluble statin to a water-soluble statin. So it's again, it's juggling the statin 
to fit the patient. And what we want is a patient without any side effect profile. And we want the drug to be working at the same time. That's good medicine. If anyone listening to this is on a statin medication, cholesterol-lowering medication, uh, is there anything else they can be doing for themselves to lessen the effects or the side effects of a statin? Gee, this feels like I'm in my office having a conversation with a patient. Uh, sure you can. I mean, I've heard this from many of my patients. Uh, patients come in taking statins. Some of them have fatigue. Some, some of it's a, like a dreadful fatigue as well. Muscle aches and pains they can have, which are common. There are worse side effects, uh, certainly liver side effects. But what patients come in with is anything, for, like males have had some sexual difficulty on statins, for example. When patients come in with these of side effects, my go-to nutritional supplement is coenzyme Q10. Because remember this, Drew, statins are a tremendous cholesterol killers. But remember that the CoQ10 pathway lies in that cholesterol pathway. So when you're knocking cholesterol down, you're knocking down the endogenous production of CoQ10 in the body. So what I've done with my patients is that I would administer a minimum of 100, sometimes I have to go to 200 milligrams of CoQ10, and I would use a high quality ubiquinone. There's a lot of controversy out there whether ubiquinol is better than ubiquinone. I mean, I can tell you this from my experience of using CoQ10 for almost four decades. A good, high-quality ubiquinone is as good as any ubiquinol out there. The only difference is the patient doesn't pay a lot more for their supplement because ubiquinol is patent. You know, it's it's trademarked situation. I just don't think it's necessary to uh, spend you know extra dollars on a supplement because you know, Drew. One of the things I'm really sensitive about is I have patients that come in, they're on pharmaceutical drugs, they're taking supplements. We have to be very mindful of their budget. That's very, very important. So a doctor needs to always think about, you know, what these patients have to do, you know, economically and financially to, uh, you know, support a better health profile. Yeah, that's a great point about the cost effectiveness and making sure that our patients are not you know, putting so much money into something they don't necessarily need to be doing. What other nutrient deficiencies are there with statins? Anything else? Or is really CoQ10 really the main one that our listeners should be aware of? Yeah, CoQ10. I mean, I like pa- patients on MK7 again. I mean, I think MK7 is, is vital. I mean, I, I met the original researchers on MK7 uh, years ago. I, I just feel uh, this is one supplement that I personally take every day. I mean, who needs coronary calcification? I mean, nobody needs it. And, and I think a lot of women, for example, who uh, want to support their bone health, MK7, remember, it takes calcium out of blood vessels where it doesn't belong, and it puts it back in bones where it does belong. So I, I'm a big advocate of MK7. And what about fish oil and omega-3s and you know, EPA, DHA? What about those things? Do those help at all? Absolutely. I mean, I really like omega-3s. I mean, even the most recent medical studies are showing the benefits of omega-3. And remember, omega-3s not only lower inflammation, but they do have a blood thinning quality as well. And I'll tell you, the sine qua non of coronary artery disease in this day and age of of our computerized modern society is ketchup-like blood, red ketchup-like blood. And I've talked about this many times, but basically, when you use some of these supplements in combination with pharmaceutical drugs, what you're really doing is you're improving the blood profile and you're making the blood more slippery and thinner. And it's always been my belief that the more we make the blood freely flowing through blood vessels, uh, the better our health is. Well, talking about drugs that thin the blood, we're talking about ketchup 
consistency blood here. What about aspirin? A lot of our viewers are, are probably taking a baby aspirin to you know, prevent a coronary event. What, what is your thought on primary prevention and also secondary prevention, meaning someone has had a coronary event, let's say a heart attack or a stroke, and they're taking aspirin? Well, for secondary prevention, I like it. So in any patient with a, with a bypass, a stent, an angioplasty, previous heart attack, I do like a low-dose baby aspirin a day. Now, primary prevention is another story. Remember this, Drew. About 19,000 people a year can die of GI bleeding from aspirin. I mean, aspirin can have a horrific effect in a susceptible individual and, and, and cause bleeding in the, in the abdomen. So when it comes to primary prevention, I don't agree with the use of aspirin. And recently, the conventional medical establishment has come to a similar opinion. So for any of our listeners out there that take aspirin as a preventive, and they don't have a history of, of coronary artery disease, take aspirin off the table. And I'll tell you another little story. There was an NIH researcher that came to my hospital uh, who gave a lecture. Uh, he was a cardiologist. I had dinner with him you know, in one of our local restaurants after the lecture, and he was limping a little bit. And I said to him, I go, I, I noticed you were limping at, at the lecture today, and I see you have a little limp. Well, what happened? He pulls up his pants leg, and he shows me his knee, and it's like the swelling. He has a double knee, almost like, this, you know, similar to the fact that, you know, you know, when you injured yourself in football, remember your knee was twice the size? Well, I got to tell you, I said, well, how'd you do that? He goes, well, I was skiing. I go, oh. And then he says, oh, but I forgot to tell you, I was taking aspirin for the prevention of heart disease, and I twisted my knee, and I had this hemarthrosis. I had this bleeding into my knee. And, he, and I said, are you still taking aspirin? He goes, heck no. He goes, I, I won't take aspirin again ever because you never know. You never know that, sure, you get these blood thinning aspects of aspirin, but if you're in an accident, God forbid, an automobile accident, you're in a ski accident or anything like this, that's another downside of aspirin. So the primary pre prevention using aspirin, I'm out on. Secondary prevention, if you have a little bit to gain, I'm all in on. All right, that's, that's a great tip for our listeners here. Now, we, we talked about the thick blood, right? Now, how do we know if we have thick blood? I mean, in my practice, I'll typically run something like a homocysteine, a fibrinogen, an LP little a, an LPPLA2, maybe an MPO if it's, we have access to it, CRP, ESR, right? Those are pretty good biomarkers, would you say, for looking at the consistency of the blood, the thickness? Well, these, these biomarkers don't actually measure the thickness of the blood. They measure the inflammatory potential of the blood, which then drives the blood into this red ketchup state. Now, there are specific tests. We call it blood rheology. In fact, Dr. Kenzie, years ago, developed this. And uh, I thought he was years away from his, ahead of his time, so to speak. Uh, however, the conventional medical establishment has really not adopted it. What blood tests should our listeners be asking their doctor about? The easiest thing to do is to get a cholesterol fractionization. In other words, look at the cholesterol, look at the HDL. And, and remember, there's dysfunctional forms of HDL now and looking at the LDL. And, and you know, because, I mean, some of the numbers are important. But more importantly, I like other risk factors like LP little a, homocysteine, fibrinogen, I mean, to mention a few. And like, I think LP little a, Drew, is a real cholesterol story. This is a situation that can be inherited. Years ago, it was written up as a very, very severe coronary risk factor. 
When I was practicing cardiology on a day-to-day basis, I tested LP little a in all my patients. And I was amazed that this was indeed a significant risk factor. And, and this is what it is, Drew. LP little a, little a is a very small cholesterol particle. It has a disulfide bridge. It is enormously blood clotting, and it has a very significant inflammatory component to it. So it causes thickening of the blood, inflammation of the blood, and this is one risk factor that I like to target. And uh, the problem is, is that cholesterol-lowering drugs like statins can actually raise it. Now, there, there are no really decent pharmaceutical drugs that lower LP little a. Now, what lowers it? Well, statins lo- don't lower it. They can raise it. Uh, niacin uh, can have an effect on LP little a. Lumbrokinase, nanokinase, they can offset the ill effects of uh, LP little a. CoQ10. There's an article in Coke about CoQ10 showing that it lowered LP little a. And I'll tell you, when I read this article in the medical literature, it was only a couple of years ago, I think it was 2017 or 18, where coenzyme Q10, which is my go-to nutrient for any cardiovascular situation, as well as a preventive, when I saw that it impacted LP little a, a major risk factor in young and old people for coronary disease, Oh, I felt an incredible joy in my body. You know as well as I do that when it comes to coenzyme Q10, I'm all in. I mean, this is one, I call it a miracle nutrient. And this is one nutrient that I have not only enormous clinical experience with, but I've written about it in multiple papers in the peer-reviewed medical literature. So I think over the next decade, CoQ10 is going to be used more and more in cardiovascular situations, particularly by cardiologists, family practitioners, and internists as well. All right. Well, look, we've talked about cholesterol. We've talked about statins, men, women. We've talked about aspirin. talked about, you know, different biomarkers that listeners can ask their doctor to run on them to learn about their inflammatory status and et cetera. Let's move on to hypertension, right? Because blood pressure is another big cardiovascular issue that people have, right? And a lot of people come to me to see me for their high blood pressure and all sort of alternatives that they can use besides pharmaceuticals. Let, let's, let's delve into hypertension. Sure. And, and the point here about hypertension is that this affects women much more than men. And the reason why I say this is that not only have the, the, the degree of women in the workplace have, has you know, increased and the stress on women has increased, but women, as opposed to men, take more what we call non-steroidals, Motrin-like derivatives, you know, certainly these are aspirin-like derivatives, ibuprofens. I mean, there's various drugs that can render a woman more hypertensive. And this is very important for women to know because one of the things about high blood pressure in a woman, and the reason why it's more of a significant risk factor than a male is first, her anatomy is different. She has smaller blood vessels. And high blood pressure in a woman renders a woman more than a man in developing what we call diastolic dysfunction of the heart. And I know these are terms that may be particularly bothersome for the lay public to hear, but women need to hear this. This is very, very important. And this is cutting edge, leading edge information. So uh, in any woman who is hypertensive, if they take these, you know, non-inflammatory drugs, they're going to be very, very careful, very careful. And any woman with high blood pressure is more at risk than a man. So we have to be aggressive in women. 
And the data shows this as well. As well, Next to cigarette smoking, high blood pressure is the number one risk factor in women in provoking coronary artery disease. And when do you start to get concerned about blood pressure in terms of a, a number, right? Because what we try to aim for is 120 over 80, right? Systolic over diastolic. What do you see as a problem? Well, when I was in medical school, it used to be 138 over 88, anything over that. Uh, and now today, it is 120 over 80. In fact, we even, we even like 120 or 115 over 70 to 75. When it comes to blood pressure, the lower is better. And the same thing is true of blood sugar, Drew. We used to think a blood sugar of 100 was normal. Now we know that a fasting blood sugar of 70 is what we strive for. So uh, this whole risk factor profile, when, when we do look at numbers, whether it's homocysteine, whether it's LP little a, whether it's fibrinogen, you know, we want lower numbers. Uh, everyday blood sugar is, is equally as important. The lower the blood sugar, the, the, uh, this is important. And I should say this, 100 million diabetics in the USA, and there are tests out there to test for insulin resistance. They can test for early insulin resistance. And I think this is going to be a game changer. I really think, and this is new information for our listeners, these newer tests where if you can find out if a person is more insulin resistant before it arises, oh my gosh, now you're making a dent in cardiovascular prevention. I see some good things on the horizon. I hope our listeners ask your doctors about some of these newer tests that are coming out because uh, if you can lower your blood sugar and lower your blood pressure numbers, to me, this is one of the greatest ways of preventing coronary artery disease. Well, in regards to blood sugar, all we have today is really a fasting glucose. We can do a fasting C-peptide, right, to learn about insulin production. Then we can run a fasting insulin. And then we have hemoglobin A1C. Right. Other than that, that's all we have for information. So I can't wait for these insulin resistance tests to come. Oh, yeah, these, these newer tests are coming out. This is a joy of medicine, is when you can learn about prevention. Remember, prevention is easier than cure. So wouldn't this be great that if you would have, like, I have a positive family history of diabetes. I mean, my grandmother and my mother were both diabetic. That's why I always try to keep my weight down. I, I, I continuously check my hemoglobin A1C at least once a year. But if you can render a person who is susceptible to insulin resistance or diabetes for that matter, and you can reverse that early on, oh my gosh, Remember, inflammation is a key ingredient in ill health, whether it's Alzheimer's disease or heart disease. And insulin is the number one provoking inflammatory hormone. So if we can determine tests that can navigate around those insulin inflammatory relationships, oh my gosh, we're, we're doing a lot of good for humanity. Well, I think we're going to have a future podcast on blood sugar alone. So we'll, we'll come back to that. Going back to blood pressure really quick, exercise is something that all of our listeners can do. Whether walking. They, walking. Walking. Simple as that. Just do that, right? In the neighborhood, get out in nature. Uh, diet's an important piece too. We talked about inflammation and sugar and different foods that people may be eating. They may be creating more inflammation in the body. Getting rid of those foods and really cleaning up the diet can really help. But what else can people do to help lower their, their blood pressure? Well, there was an article that was just published and uh, I was part of that study in the Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine about grounding. Uh, it was a small pilot study, and all 12 patients who were on multiple hypertensive drugs, all 12 patients were able to reduce their drugs by one or two, and everybody had a significant uh, reduction in both systolic and diastolic blood pressure by simply sleeping grounded at night. 
So, you know, this whole aspect of grounding and thinning the blood and reducing blood pressure and improving the autonomic nervous system. In other words, if you have an overcharged sympathetic nervous system, this creates higher blood pressure numbers. So when you, when you balance out the autonomic nervous system, you know, through, you know, connecting with Mother Earth, Earth energy, again, you're, you're bringing these health benefits, uh, you know, literally to the person. Now, what about anything else? I mean, in my practice, I like to recommend something like magnesium. Right, magnesium can have a little bit of a oh, blood pressure lowering you effect. Know, I am so glad you mentioned magnesium because I, I think magnesium is the unsung hero. I mean, it's part of my awesome foursome. You know, I like you know ribose, carnitine, uh, coenzyme Q10, and magnesium because of what they do to the heart. They s- support the production of ATP. They dr- they drive the energy of the heart in a preferential direction. And I think there's one thing that you and I disagree on. I want to talk about here, and that's Raulfia. Oh, it's yeah. an herb yeah, yeah, yeah. that I use extensively in my practice all the time. As a vasodilator, yeah. And I have not seen uh, an increase in depression from it, which is in the literature. If you read about using higher doses of raufia, right. you may see depression settle in. I've never seen that, and I found it to be very effective with other things on board, whether it's magnesium or CoQ10 or all the other things that we talked about and grounding. Um, but I do find raufia to be... Helpful. Hey, if it works, Drew, use it. I mean, uh, I'm not a big fan of Raulfia because I'm always afraid the person's going to eat the wrong form of cheese or something. And I'm, I'm sure you coach him about the diet, you know, these tyramine cheeses or whatever it is where, where you can get an adverse reaction. You know, being a doctor is sometimes is so hard. I mean, you know, I mean, look at all these children, for example, who were taking an antibiotic and, 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 and had death you know, because of eating certain foods. I mean, it, it, it's just amazing that certain foods or, or things we take in a diet can have an adverse effect, whether you're taking an antibiotic or a blood pressure-lowering medication. That's why, uh, you know, I've always believed in more natural ways of healing. Hey, look, if you need a pharmaceutical drug, I'm all in. I mean, I, I mean, I'm all in. If you have an angina or a refractory high blood pressure or arrhythmias, oh my gosh, you know, but if we're treating situations uh, with pain or, or discomfort or, or, you know, moderate blood pressure or, or mild hyperglycemia, you know, I like more natural ways of treating these patients. Well, I'm so happy you brought that up about, you know, the, the importance of using a pharmaceutical when needed. Because in my practice, you know, if a patient comes in and it's 180 over 100, oh, you know, it, it could be due to stress, right? You got to take that into consideration. You got to do multiple draws. You can make sure you're doing it at the right elevation of the left arm, et cetera, sitting, right? All these factors need to go into taking a correct blood pressure. But if it is sustained and if it is elevated over time, I have no problem prescribing them a diuretic like HCTZ, right? Or doing like a, an ACE inhibitor like lisinopril, or maybe there'll be a beta blocker on board or something like that, right? As while you're working on the other things in their life, working on stress, working on their diet, encouraging exercise, talking about grounding, getting on nutraceuticals on board, right? Magnesium, et cetera. So I think that that's a really important piece that you and I are talking about right now is, hey, pharmaceuticals can be really, really helpful in a time like this when you need to get blood pressure down quickly, right? While you ramp up the other things. Well said, son. And I got to tell you, while you're using those alternative ways of methodologies in your patient, guess what? When they come back, you can cut the drug in half. I'm sure you've done that. Cut it in a quarter and then take them off it. And again, that's the joy of medicine, where if you can get your patient on a more natural healing program, that's the way we want to go. Well, we covered a lot today, Dad, right? (laughs) As a recap, we talked about how cholesterol is really not that big of an issue more inflammation 
is what we should be worried about. Yeah, and remember that sugar is really the driver of coronary artery disease because it sets the stage for inflammation. We also talked about how young people need to be more vigilant, right? It's not this heart disease. It's not just a, you know, something that's going to affect someone in their 60s and 70s. This could happen to someone in their 30s and 40s. Absolutely. We also discussed how uh, for women, the, 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 there's a rise in cardiovascular disease that you're seeing. You saw this transition happen back in 2000, right? The, right. The shift that was happening in the graph. So women are just as susceptible to men, to heart disease. And we'll have a future podcast, I think, about that because there's so much to talk about with women and heart disease. Well, yes. And, and the truth is, is that women are getting heart disease more than men. I mean, like I said, the, the graphs have crossed. Now, this is kind of scary. Yeah, we'll dig into that in a future podcast. And uh, lastly, we talked about um, different biomarkers, right? These different blood tests that um, patients or you know people listening to this podcast can ask their doctor about. Yeah, it's not just cholesterol. I mean, I would get a fasting blood sugar, a homocysteine, an LP little a, a fibrinogen. You know, fibrinogen is a marker of the thickness of the blood, particularly in postmenopausal women who smoke cigarettes. It goes sky high. So yeah, I mean, all these markers are important, and patients need to ask their doctor. Uh, if they want to check the cholesterol, they should ask, oh, doctor, can you check my LP little a, you know, my homocysteine, you know, these, my C-reactive protein, which is an index of inflammation of the blood. So if, if the doctor checks these entities, at least we have a firm grasp on uh, in the inflammatory nature of early heart disease. Before we wrap up this episode of Be Healthistic, I wanted to share our wellness wisdom for the day. We've been talking about heart health and given my dad's expertise in cardiology, he's been able to share a lot of really important information with you. But I think the most critical aspect from today's discussion that we wanted to reinforce for our listeners is about women's heart health, specifically the warning signs women need to be aware of if they're having a heart attack. Heart disease is the number one cause of death for women in the United States. And because the symptoms can be very subtle and totally different than the well-known classic symptoms that men experience, Many women completely miss the signs until it's too late. So, in the spirit of awareness, we wanted to share the most common red flags for a heart attack in women. Women's signs are far subtler than men's. Men often have dramatic onset, such as a numbness or a sharp pain in the middle, left or right side of the chest. For women, warning symptoms can often appear as anxiety, stress, or indigestion. And for some, symptoms are so mild that they can be mistaken for the flu. Again, awareness is key. Pay attention to what your body is telling you, and if you feel that anything is off, don't hesitate to call 911 and reach out for medical help. Signs women should be aware of include shortness of breath, back or chest pressure, tightening of the throat, tingling or pain in your jaw, arm, or elbow, lightheadedness with exercise, dizziness, nausea, or indigestion, profuse sweating, and sudden profound fatigue. These are facts that all women should know and share with all the other women they care about. It could save lives. Remember, everyone, if you liked what you heard today and you want to be an active member of the Be Healthistic community, subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your favorites and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can also find more great content and information from us and the Healthy Directions team at HealthyDirections.com, as well as on our social media channels. Check it out. All right. Well, that's it for the show today. I'm Dr. Drew Sinatra. And I'm Dr. Steve Sinatra. And see you next time. This is Be Healthistic. Thanks for listening to Be Healthistic. 
a health and wellness podcast powered by our friends at Healthy Directions with Drs. Drew and Steve Sinatra. See you next time.